But what worries me most, as I was saying earlier, is the denial of some African states that there is dementia in their country. Their focus is entirely on the young population. So in certain countries, as we found out in our report in 2017 on Africa, if you're lucky enough that you have a family that looks after you, nobody will worry and uh, somebody will look after you. But if you're not, you end up in the street and you die, effectively. That's what happens. So we need to protect the rights of those that at this moment in time are going through that. And this can only happen through raising awareness. Silver Adventures is a content and technology company dedicated to improving the lives of older adults through immersive virtual reality experiences. And this podcast is our opportunity to hear from industry experts, thought leaders, and passionate individuals to share with you their knowledge, expertise, and experiences. Welcome to the Age Care Enrichment Podcast. Hey there, everybody. Welcome to the show. I hope you're having a super day out there. I'm your host, Ash Tanif, and today we've got a very special guest from Alzheimer's Disease International, Paola Barbarino. As CEO of Alzheimer's Disease International, or ADI, Paola leads the efforts to support national dementia organizations around the world and help drive change on a global level. And chances are, if you haven't heard of Paola or the ADI, then you've heard of their work. We recorded this interview at the tail end of Alzheimer's Awareness Month, which the ADI started. Now, we've had a few different guests on the show talking about dementia and awareness, but this conversation with Paola really put a lot of things into context for me. And I got to ask a question that maybe some of you have been wondering. Do we really need more dementia awareness programs? In countries like Australia and the UK, aren't we aware enough? Well, Paola will explain. As always, if you catch yourself nodding along with the conversations or making sounds like mmm, wow, or ah, then we'd really appreciate it if you posted some of those reactions in a review. More reviews means more listeners, more episodes, and more for you to enjoy. It's what I'm calling the circle of podcasting. But back to today's episode, we hope you enjoy this chat with Paula Barbarino. Paula, thank you so much for joining us on the program today. Thank you very much, Ash. It's my pleasure to be with you today. It's great to have you. It looks like a, a really sunny day over there in London. Uh, can you give our listeners a little bit of your background and, and the work that you're doing at the moment? Yes. So I'm Paola Berberino and I am the Chief Executive Officer of Alzheimer's Disease International. Alzheimer's Disease International is the umbrella organization of over 105 Alzheimer's associations within nations. So we have one member per country. 105 countries and 20 countries in development. Um, we were created uh, by the four largest Alzheimer's associations back in the 80s, mm-hmm. the UK, Australia, Canada, and the US, because it was important at the time um, to realize that unless you represent multiple regions of the world and countries, you really cannot be heard at the level of the World Health Organization of the United Nations. And at the time, uh, there wasn't a healthcare international body, an NGO that would look after Alzheimer's or dementia. Hmm. ADI was created. Now, if you think about other conditions, other diseases, the, for example, the International Union for Cancer Control say that was created in the 30s. 
and yet ADI was created in the 80s. And this tells you a little bit about the huge stigma surrounding Alzheimer's and dementia. Mm. So nobody really wanted to talk about it, even at multilateral level, many, many years ago. And we know now that it's the seventh leading cause of death in the world. But at the time, nobody really knew anything about prevalence and incidence. So this is also what ADI does. We started looking at the figures globally for dementia because that would give us a better um, arsenal of weapons, if you wish, or statistical weapons mm -hmm. with which to attract the attention of the world. So I manage an organization, which is a membership organization. We do publication, as I just told you. And then the third thing that we do, we do awareness raising on a larger scale. Um, so it could be going to multilaterals like the UN or the WHO. It could be going to regional bodies. It could be go to national bodies with our members. Or it could be generally doing awareness raising. Now you're recording this during World Alzheimer's Month, which is our biggest awareness raising campaign. Fantastic. And, and for a lot of our listeners who work within aged care and healthcare in general, they might feel like raising awareness is something that they don't need That if they're dealing with people who have Alzheimer's every day. But is this still a really prevalent issue in countries like the UK and Australia? So awareness raising is massively important. It's, there is a feeling in the sector. I don't come originally from the sector. I have been very fortunate to have seven different careers and worked in many, many fields. Mm -hmm. And when I joined this sector, it struck me how committed and knowledgeable the people in the sector were, but also how ignorant the rest of the world was about their efforts. So the uh, there is a, a kind of denial globally around dementia yet. In many countries, the stigma is very high. People still find it difficult to talk about a loved one having dementia. And although we in the sector like to think that this is not the case anymore, it is still the case. Mm. So it's very easy um, to believe that because you're always talking to the same people and because those people know what it is that you do, there is no need to educate others. But alas, that's not the case. So in certain countries of the world, the situation is particularly bad. So I'm thinking, for example, the continent of Africa, where even at governmental level, people are in denial about the existence of dementia in their country. Um, but also in more enlightened country, if you wish, like Australia or uh, the UK, where the Alzheimer's Society and Dementia Australia are doing great work, even then you do have pockets that still feel very stigmatized by dementia. And then that stigma becomes higher at the time in which you, as a person, find difficult to obtain a diagnosis or to obtain uh, post-diagnostic support or information about the disease or provision of respite care, assistance, psychological support. So these things are still not available and therefore that creates further senses of unhappiness and stigmatization. We publish a report every year, a World Alzheimer's report, as you know, and two years ago we published one on stigma and we interviewed 70,000 people all over the world about the topic because wow. I really wanted to have a baseline, a big baseline, you know, what is that people feel about stigma and dementia. And I have to say, it was very prevalent, even in high income countries. 
So we still have a big battle to fight. But that's really interesting to hear. And, and we've spoken to a few people, a few people in the UK actually, about raising awareness. Some high-profile people like Angela Rippon and Ian Sheriff, who are, who are doing good work raising awareness over there. But their focus seems to be much more on the public. But it sounds like there is a real place for raising awareness for people who are living with the disease or who have been recently diagnosed. You have to raise awareness with everybody. So you cannot uh, limit it to one segment of the population, although those that should be helped the most are the ones that have been diagnosed or are living with it. Raising awareness with the public is essential because dementia, as you know, hits indiscriminately. You don't know who is going to be getting it. And so you do need to make sure that everybody knows. So we do a lot of campaigning, for example, around the the warning signs of dementia, Mm -hmm. or what do you have to do in order to reduce your risk? Now, it always helps us when high-profile figures, like the wonderful Angela Rippon, for example, do, do social media or tweets or go public in programs, to say something about the the issue. I mean, we at ADI have got our own high-profile figures which operate at global level. We have the Queen of Spain, the Queen of Sweden, et cetera, Mm. who are great advocates. It's very difficult also for organizations to find advocates because the stigma is high. And as you know, several public figures do have dementia, but the families don't want to talk about it. So, you know, it's still a challenge when Dementia Australia finds an advocate for you guys, for example, that is a big achievement. It's not, it's never easy to find people that want to advocate for something as complex. Plus, for many people, the experience of looking after a dear one that has dementia is a very personal and sometimes very painful experience. And, you know, some people just don't want to share it. Yeah, absolutely. Now, you've mentioned a few times uh, the annual report that ADI releases, and I believe you just re- released this this week yes. in uh, alignment with the World Alzheimer's Day, which was yesterday as we recorded. Can you tell us a bit about what was in this year's report? Yes. So perhaps we should take a step back. So ADI is the organization that organizes World Alzheimer's Day and World Alzheimer's Month. So we created it about 10 years ago because there was nothing. There wasn't a day to celebrate Alzheimer's and dementia. And it's wonderful to see just how many people now do it. Mm. We started measuring its impact on social media about three years ago. And the first year we measured 900,000 impressions, say. And the second year we measured 2 million. And we thought, wow, it's growing. Then last year we measured 20 million. We thought, oh my God, it's going really seriously. Mm -hmm. And then this year, as I speak to you, yesterday we were at 31 million. Wow. So the movement is becoming bigger and bigger. So for us at multilateral level, it's very important to have these figures because we can go with much more confidence to WHO to the various bodies that we interact with and say, look, there's millions of people here that are really asking and demanding for change. So change is what we demand in the World Alzheimer's Report. The one we launched yesterday is about diagnosis. So we have commissioned two uh, reports, one on diagnosis this year, one on post-diagnostic support for next year, both of them to be done by McGill University. Now, the reason why we uh, worked on diagnosis this year is that we could see this little perfect storm gathering on the horizon. And that is that uh, COVID-19, first and foremost, has 
obviously on the diagnosis of dementia. So we could see that at some point there would be a glut and a lot of people would ask for a diagnosis because they'd been too scared to go and see the doctor for a year and a half. The second one is that there are therapeutic breakthroughs on the horizon. So you may know, of course, that there have been, there is the possibility of some medical cure. And cure, we can't really talk about cure. These are all things at the moment delaying mm. the, the onset of the disease, but certainly something that the public will be interested in and want. Now, all these compounds are coming on the market, require a confirmed diagnosis of Alzheimer's or dementia. And actually to diagnose Alzheimer's and dementia is really difficult. It's not easy at all. And also when I say Alzheimer's and dementia is kind of wrong because one is a disease, one is a condition. And so Alzheimer's is a form of dementia. There are 104 forms of dementia and Alzheimer's is one of them, the most common. But diagnosing all of these is, is not simple at all. We still don't have a blood biomarker. We think there's going to be one arriving soon uh, and that also is one of the reasons why we did the diagnostic report, because mm. we thought, you know, there's going to be further diagnostic capacity. But the presence of this possible uh, therapeutic breakthrough that would require diagnosis means, again, that people will be asking for a diagnosis. Because if you have to be diagnosed timely, which is in both cases uh, necess necessary, then you do need to go to your doctor and there would be again a glut of people that will be hopefully more interested. This is why the theme of this year is also no dementia, no Alzheimer and learn to recognize the warning sign of dementia so that you can ask for a diagnosis. Now, the other thing that we realized was that in certain countries, in many countries, the availability of diagnostic equipment is very limited. But in other countries, even the availability of psychiatrists, geriatricians, neurologists that could interpret those results is even lower. Hmm. And even in countries like Australia, for example, you will have areas that are better served and areas that are worse served. And so some people, for example, in rural areas, pretty much all over the world, comment and lament the fact that there are less provisions in their areas. So, you know, you don't want to end up in a situation like we say in England of a postcode lottery where some people get better because they happen to be in an area where there is better service and some others don't. Mm. So it's quite a, a complex thing. But we also so we wanted to look at the problem from a ge geopolitical viewpoint, obviously, from a social viewpoint. From the point of view of people living with dementia, so what had been their experience? Because we've been hearing a lot of stories about people pretty much said, told you have a diagnosis and that's it, go back home. Yeah. You know, that's it, this is terminal and no information provided. So one of the interesting things we discovered in the report is a high percentage of people, this terrible experience of being given a diagnosis, and the doctor don't point them to the relevant information. And yet 98% of all Alzheimer's association that we work with have that information on their website. So there is a simple break point in communication between the doctors that should just point the person at least, at the very least, to these sources that are available. So hmm. the people can start understanding what will be the progression of the disease, whether they can access information and what, what can they do to make their quality of life better during the course of the disease and for their families. And this is also something that is part of a human rights, if you wish, because uh, one of the things that we found in the report is that 30% of clinicians 
felt that because there was nothing to do, why bother doing a diagnosis? Hmm. So, you know, that is a big statement, very big statement. Yeah. Because who is anyone to tell me whether I should know or not? It's my right to know. And if you don't respect that, you're being condescending towards another human being. I mean, who is to say whether I should know? Certainly, some people may not want to know. Fair enough, it's their prerogative. There is a right to know. So the report has uncovered a lot of these, these points. The report is also very technical. So it's also very good for GPs and very good, sorry, for family doctors. It's very good for uh, researchers because effectively it goes through in, in great detail all the technical elements of diagnosis, mm-hmm. diagnosing from the point of view of a doctor that has to deliver a diagnosis and, and do a diagnosis uh, and what is all the latest around diagnostics. And from the point of view of researcher and what is the late uh, bit about research. But again, as I say, we look at it from all kinds of angles, political angle, from the angle of a person with dementia, of a carer, and so on and so forth. Wow, so many different moving parts that are to kind of tie up in, into one report and, and, and one approach. I, I hadn't thought about the, but you're right, of course, the people who are being diagnosed, if the service they're getting from their GP is not adequate or is not preparing them for the next stage by providing resources, then they're being left out and there is a need to direct them to things. Have you found that it's successful in targeting GPs to encourage them to give more information or do you just need to go above the GPs and go straight to the audience? Well, to a point, you know, one of the, uh, I'll tell you how the first idea of the report came into my mind was actually slightly different. I had gone uh, uh, to a gathering in Europe of a European body that was working on big data and diagnostics like wearables, you know, the kind of stuff that you can get from wearables. Mm. And so as I was going to speak at this event and I was gathering information on this particular issue, I was given this article I felt that many people who suspected they had dementia, but they were too uh, scared to go to the doctor to ask for a diagnosis because they didn't want, you know, a lot of people don't want to know really. They want to know, but they don't want to know. Mm. Uh, We go to websites, which were kind of bogus websites, if you wish, then were promising bogus cures and, and then they were spending money on these cures. So I thought, oh my God, you know, you're talking of people who are really vulnerable because they're scared, because they don't know what they have, because what they have may be very, very complex and, you know, may may make them vulnerable. Hmm. So why don't government provide you with a point of entry in the healthcare system website, like it would be the NHS in England, and say, well, this is if you think you have dementia, this is what you have to do. And either give them a test or tell them what are the next steps. Uh, but they don't. And so in part, the report is practical. It's all practical. So you were saying, you know, how do you get to the GP? The report was about also making recommendations to government. We make some very clear recommendations, you know, all over 50 should go for a checkup um, at their doctors. So the report now becomes part of a public health strategy. So what we are trying now to do for all of our members to go to their government with the report and say to their government, look, this is a big problem. It's not sorted. This report gives you all the background about it. What about public health campaigning um, for the public? Yes, but also better education for the doctors. Mm. Because obviously the doctors have to be knowledgeable about a huge amount of topics. And um, their education is actually the duty of the body that employs them. So 
There was a study by OECD in 2017. OECD is the body that gathers all the high incarnation that say that in the lifetime of a doctor, an average doctor in OECD country would get 12 hours of tuition around the mention Alzheimer's. So, you know, 12 hours <laughs> and how many years do they study? Seven? Yeah, yeah. So, you know, this was high income country. So just, just tells you in our report on stigma of 2019, um, the survey we did of global practitioners, 62% of nurses and doctors uh, thought that Alzheimer's was a part of normal aging. Wow. So, you know, to your audience listening to that today, I mean, just stop and think that there is a lot of fellow practitioners that just don't understand that this is an organ that is shrinking effectively. Mm. So they think this is just normal. Uh, and so look at the scale of the problem. Obviously, I want to mobilize the world. We need public health campaigning, better education for doctors. We need to do that. And this is all uh, finalized to having a better life for the people who are living with dementia and for the family. In the report, there are a lot of testimonies of people that say, oh my God, if somebody had just told us what we would be going through, it would have been so much easier to organize our life, to understand the person that we were looking after, to be nicer in any possible circumstances about this. And this is about, you know, dignity, it's about making another human being still uh, feel loved and understood at a time in which there can be enormous confusion, both from the point of view of the person that has the disease and from the point of view of the family that sees this person with the disease. This episode is sponsored by Ending Loneliness Together. I just felt a sadness inside. I've never spoken to anyone about feeling lonely. I've never spoken to my, my family. I think I always try to show I'm well, especially to the kids. They'd never imagine that I felt lonely. Over 5 million Australians are lonely. While we all feel lonely from time to time, longer periods of loneliness are damaging to our health and well-being. Ending Loneliness Together is a national Australian charity with the vision to halve chronic loneliness by 2030. We all have a role to play in ending loneliness. Consider making a donation, becoming a member, or sharing your story with others. Go to www.endingloneliness.com.au for more information. People who've listened to the show and heard our episode with Kate Swaffer will remember the term CRPD, the UN Convention of the Rights of Persons with Disabilities. And people living with dementia are covered under this convention, but it seems like globally, there are some failings in the way that the human rights of people living with dementia are safeguarded. Can you give us an overview of what this looks like, human rights? Well, I mean, I first of all, I will acknowledge the enormous, immense amount of work that Kate has done on this topic. I mean, her and Peter Mittler before her and with her have been tireless mm. in trying to bring to the attention of the UN this, this issue about this invisible disability and this is a big topic, and we also covered it in last year's report, which was on design, dignity, and dementia, that was actually authored by a Wollongong University team at that point. The CRPD, it's a complex instrument. So it covers a bit everything, but it also leaves ample interpretation 
of it according to the local customs and rules. Mm-hmm. Now, I think rather than getting into the instrument, it can be quite dry. I'll give you a couple of examples. Mm-hmm. So, for example, in Costa Rica, I have seen it really uh, employed at its best. So Costa Rica, for a period, had a very benighted government, and they really uh, look at it from the point of view of the rights of what they call the adultos mejores, the um, senior citizens. Mm-hmm. And they would have committees at local government, senior citizens deciding what would be the best care, for example, in a care home. What did they want to happen when they needed a kind of uh, assistance? And it was all done from the point of view of older citizens have human rights. So, you know, you have to respect them and you have to give them the instrument to decide by themselves what is that they want to do with their life at the point in which they are in a vulnerable state. Mm-hmm. This also extended to cover people that didn't have any more the faculties to speak for themselves. And it extended to creating day centers, for example, or even overnight centers for people that were homeless, elderly and homeless, with conditions like dementia or other addictions. I really thought that it was such a great application to the letter. So if you think everybody has a human right, then you have to look at this particular issue in the context of people taking those decisions themselves. On the other end of the spectrum, you've got Africa, Mm. Um, where a lot of our members report of immense amount of stigmatization and also of physical attacks. Wow. People being chased in the street because they other people think they are having demonic possessions and this horrible mm. ways of, of believing. But again, it's all to do with a lack of education, public awareness. So our members in Africa, there is plenty now, are doing enormous amount of work about educating people about the fact that this is a disease, like unfortunately cancer is a disease, like heart disease is a disease. It's a disease. And so, you know, we have to get with it. But what worries me most, as I was saying earlier, is the denial of some African states that there is dementia in their country. Their focus is entirely on the young population. So in certain countries, as we found out in our report in 2017 on Africa, if you are lucky enough that you have a family that looks after you, nobody will worry and uh, somebody will look after you. Mm. But if you're not, you end up in the street and you die, effectively. That's what happens. So we need to protect the rights of those that at this moment in time are going through that. And this can only happen through raising awareness and Awareness can only be raised by people that are in the field locally and by the people that live locally and can interact with their government. So our job at ADI is to provide our members in Africa, for example, uh, with the instruments and the authoritativeness to challenge their government. And we are a non-state actors at the um, World Health Organization, so we can write to a government and we can point out if there are shortcomings and ask for the global action plan for dementia, which is the instrument, legal instrument that we are working under at the moment, which we advocated for for years and was approved in 2017. And we can ask for it to be applied. And we can point out where do we feel there are shortcomings. But it's a lot of work. You know, we are yeah. we are a think tank. We are a small team of people, which make us very flexible, very capable to do things very quickly. But nevertheless, you know, it's a huge amount of work. So there's a lot of people working behind this. 
Yeah, that's really fascinating. And so you said that you're working with about 20 countries at the moment to develop the associations. What does that look like helping them start something up? Well, uh, first of all, our developing members are all over the world, so not just in Africa. There is a lot of countries in in Asia, for example, uh, one in South America, but a lot in the Caribbean, so still have an association. Mm -hmm. Um, Working with a country, it's actually enormous fun because normally what happens, I shouldn't use the word fun, but actually working in my field is wonderful because the people behind it are so motivated. It really energizes you. So usually what happens is that you have a group of um, well-meaning citizens, usually carers that have had an experience of dementia in their family, or doctors, or carers and doctors, that get together and say, look, this is a disgrace. We don't have anything. Mm. So at the very least, let's start and create support groups. So the people that are going through the experience can speak to other people that are going the experience. But, you know, I live in England, and a friend of mine asked me the other day, saying, look, my dad clearly is beyond himself because his wife has dementia and has just gone into a care home, is a man that doesn't really have a social circle because he's always been with her. And at the moment, he finds it so difficult because he doesn't know anyone that is going through this. Hmm. So this is in England where there is a lot of provision. So you can imagine everybody in the world that has that problem. So it's lovely when these groups of people come together and want to help other people because they've gone through the experience. This is normally how it starts. Then they come to us in, in, and they usually find us. Sometimes we don't know how they find us. Sometimes we find them. Mm-hmm. And uh, then ask us to help uh, set up a charity. Sometimes they've already set up a charity. We have two levels of education, which we call Alzheimer's University. So the first one is about how to create a strong association. So we um, bring them normally to London or wherever in the world we are holding this Alzheimer's University, and we get them to work together with a number of professionals from larger associations that explain, for example, how governance work, how do you create a board, mm-hmm. how do you make yourself accountable, how do you do fundraising, how do you raise awareness, how do you interact with the people around you. So that's the first level. And then they go and for three or four years, they set up the association and we monitor them. So we provide help, advice, support. We put them in touch with other members if they have particular issues. Other members that we know have gone through that before so they can have a mentor. Mm -hmm. And then about five years later, we bring them together for another Alzheimer's University. And this is around advocacy. So we then uh, spend with them a lot of time going through government interaction. How do you interact with your government? And for us, that is illuminating because, of course, you know, there is a strong feeling in the Anglo-Saxon world, I'm Italian, but I live in London, that, you know, all governments are homogeneous. You write to your MP and you protest and whatever. But of course, that doesn't work. In the vast majority of the world, you also have to be quite expedient. You have to look at the opportunities in front of you. You know, if there is a high-profile politician and you happen to know that there is a man in their family, that person probably is the most likely person for you to contact mm. and say, look, you know, would you help us? So in many, many countries, that's how big advances have happened because you spend time getting to know who is in government and whether they they could help you. Uh, But what you can be pretty sure of is that not much is going to happen if nobody does anything. (laughs) So um, we try and make sure that 
there is a constant reminder that our community exists and has rights. Yeah, fantastic. That's really interesting to, I mean, you can imagine it starting from such a small thing and, and I, I wouldn't have thought, but you're right, that you need to teach people how to set up an organization and then how to influence government and influence people around them to start changing their opinions. We're getting towards the end of time today, but I wondered if you might have a message you'd like to share with our listeners, perhaps one for people who are working with aged care or supporting someone living with a diagnosis. I think for the people that are uh, around you to think about how fortunate you are in Australia to have Dementia Australia, for example, you know, a great organization that has been going for a long time and appreciate a little bit more how difficult it is still to keep this organization working and influential. And if you can support your local member, so ADI is member in every country, I don't know where your listeners will be, but uh, there is a list of members in our website. If you can support people locally, it's really important. Because, you know, they need your support, your love, your understanding that there is a big game here. And it's very difficult. We are always against the tide of many other priorities. And if we want this to be a priority, the individual voice matters. I also would like to remind people that, you know, in Australia, there's been recently, for example, an important commission on ageing. And I know the Australian government is trying very hard to be more, if you wish, dementia friendly. But that is constantly threatened by resources, by the, you know, other things competing for uh, resources. So it's up to your audience really to do direct action, to make sure that you continue for us all to be together. So when there is World Alzheimer's Month, do participate into it. I think you guys are having Dementia Awareness Week, but this is all part of the same movement. Every member of ADI interprets it as they want. Mm-hmm. Um, do use those hashtags, you know, do use, do try to, to, to do that. And again, you're very fortunate in Australia to have important advocate like Case Waffer. That is not to be um, ever forgotten. It's difficult to have a generation of people that advocate. It's important for us to have more. Mm. Fantastic. Paola, thank you so much for your time today. Really quickly, if people want to find out about the ADI's report, where can they get that? Um, so we have a website, which is www.alzint.org. And under that website, there is a section called um, Reports and Research, and you can download it from there. Everything we do is free. Coming to our webinar is free. So I hope your audience will find it of interest and willing to keep in touch. Perfect. Thanks so much for your time, Paula. Thank you very much, Ash. Well, we hope you enjoyed this episode of the Age Care Enrichment Podcast, brought to you by Silver Adventures. Don't forget to subscribe to the podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you're listening. And if you're enjoying it, please leave us a review. We'd really appreciate it. If you're interested in finding out how immersive virtual reality experiences can enrich the lives of older adults, visit the Silver Adventures website today at www.silveradventures.com.au. See you next week.